Hello and welcome to Reaper's Digest, the horror, literature, film, comic, video game maybe, podcast where we analyze things in a way that they maybe haven't gotten but still deserve. My name is Jay. And my Hmm? name is Jay Austin. Duke, go ahead and introduce yourself to the lovely okay. folks. Uh, my, name is, my name is Duke Ralston. I am part of uh, Tennessee Macabre. We host classic horror movies. We're about to launch a radio station called the Psychotronic Frog that's going to be doing independent music, horror music. Uh, it's got some really neat stuff coming up. Maybe some maybe some radio shows to be. And I also write uh, write short stories, horror, fantasy, science fiction, mostly horror and fantasy. Excellent. I am Blake Ray. I am one half of the Pulp Factory E-Zine. I always say co-founder, but it's really just the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> and then all, all our lovely writers, such as Duke himself Thank you. I, I'm one of the two lead singers of the band Blood Oaks and I have been a horror nerd and a lit nerd my whole life I grew up reading horror sci-fi fantasy and I love it yep I absolutely love it what you drinking tonight dude I am drinking uh, I am drinking common John uh, and it is uh, a ver- it's called the Cra- Crazy Dreams, and it is an American Pale Ale. Um, American Pale Ale. I can almost talk tonight, man. Almost. American, American Pale Ale is not uh, the first thing that I go for, but this is a very good one. Uh, kind of citrusy. Uh, a little bit hoppy. It's not as hoppy as an IPA, of course, but a little bit hoppy, a little bit citrusy. Very refreshing summer beer. I got my own summer beer today. Good. I've what is that? Orpheus at Atlanta. I what have heard of it. Never had it. I'd like to try it. Oh, it is a plum saison. It oh. is very tart. Yep. And it is about the best beer for a nice summer night, you know? Yeah, yeah. Funny how I discovered this beer. How was that? Well, I was at a Halloween party, and I was already, uh, let's say, two in, you know? (laughs) Yes. Mm. But I opened up this beer, or I opened up a cooler and found this beer, and... uh, my God, I was like taken aback. I took a picture of it so I could find it the next day because I knew I wasn't going to remember it. <laughs> love those late night cooler finds. Mm-hmm. Gotta love them. Mm-hmm. So what are we talking about tonight, Duke? 
Well, we're talking about Salem's Lot, and tonight our conversation is going to be mostly about the movie. Uh, we talked about the novel last week. Of course, I cannot, I mean, we're going to be going back and forth uh, because yeah. it's hard to, to talk about the movie without referencing the novel and vice versa. Yeah. But um, the movie is how this was really, this movie was probably my first exposure to Stephen King. And um, I can remember uh, it, it aired as a uh, miniseries, and I don't remember what network, but it aired, oh, late September, early October. It was a Halloween movie in 1979, and I can remember rushing home from football practice to watch this movie, and it scared the bejesus out of me. Then 40 years later, not 40 years later, probably 35 years later, the guy that I do Tennessee Macabre with, Neil Privet, had a copy of it. Had not seen it since that initial time I viewed it in 1979. And I mentioned something about, I really wanted to see this movie again. He said, man, I got a copy. Here it is. You can have it. And uh, I remember thinking before I sat down to watch it, uh, well, this was scary when I was you know, 12 years old in 1979. It's not going to be that scary now. Mm -hmm. Sat down and watched it. It's still scary. <laughs> scary. Yeah, it's still scary. It ain't lost a step. Yeah. It is one of the better uh, vampire movies out there. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Yes. I'd put it up there within my top five vampire movies. I'm just sitting here thinking because that's a. Uh, um, that that it's got to be it's in the top five it's either number one or number two mm -hmm. uh lost boys is lost huge. boys is good um i like uh bram stroker's uh dracula from the late 90s that one's good and i'm partial to that one what i'm partial to that one because i had a huge crush on one on a writer didn't we all Mm -hmm. uh, I love that one, and um, I like From Dusk, Dusk Till Dawn. I like it. It's a good movie. I don't know if I fit it in the top five vampire movies, but it's a good movie. And I love um, the Carmillas, the series of vampire movies that Hammer did in the mm -hmm. early 70s that was based on Carmilla. Oh, God, those are great. And we're going to have to talk about Carmilla and the movie adaptations eventually. because. Yeah. And that's bar none my favorite vampire novel. Oh, yeah. Well, far and away. Far and away. Yeah. And uh, those movies are really, really, uh, I love those movies. So, oh. Oh, what, yeah. are top, um, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Um, gotta say, uh, Fright Night. Fright mm -hmm. Night's up there. That's uh, a good one. I didn't mention that one. I didn't. Yeah. Fright Night, uh, Near Dark. Yes. That's a good one. Dark. Um, what we do in the shadows. Yes. Which is hilarious. Yeah. I would say this one, and then maybe, maybe thirty days of night. Thirty days of night is a good. One. Another good one. I'm trying. I never can remember the name of it, but it is based on the filming of Nosferatu. It has John Malkovich in Battle it. Battle of the Vampire. Battle of the Vampire. It's really quirky and weird, and I really dig it. Yeah. 
A great flick. A yeah. great flick. A film, even. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I don't know if Malkovich has been in too many flicks, but he's been in a lot of films. <laughs> yeah, those guys do films, yeah. Yeah. But it, it is a lot of fun, and, and like this telling, it, it rethinks the whole vampire story in a different way. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, this one to me is a much more rock and roll vampire story. A very kind of punk rock in your face of the era kind of vampire story. Yes. You know, because it is, uh, I mean, it's Toby Hooper, right? And for those of you who don't know who Toby Hooper is, I mean, the guy directed, well, you do know him. He directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre, wrote and directed that's his claim to fame. Although he was, uh, he did a lot of great movies, you know. But uh, before we get too far afield, let's do our basic info, you know. Uh, the movie was also known as Salem's Lot: colon, The Movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> Salem's Lot: The Miniseries, and Bloodthirst. Played in, uh, aired in 1979. As an adaptation of the horror novel. Yes. Directed by Toby Hooper, starring David Soule and James Mason. So, you know, some James Mason, he's a heavy hitter, you know? He is a heavy hitter. Also had Bonnie Padilla in it, um, mm-hmm. uh, Elijah J. Cook. Yeah. Elijah Cook, I don't know. I get him confused. He did a ton of horror movies. He did a lot of cameos in a thousand horror movies. And the first one I remember him in is House of Haunted Hill. Um, so he was in it. And then Jeffrey Lewis was in it. Yeah. Jeffrey Lewis did a lot of stuff. Probably most famous for doing things with Clint Eastwood. But he did this one. And he did one of my favorite werewolf movies, Man of the Wolf. From 1972. That's a good movie. Yeah, it is. A lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. We'll talk werewolves soon. Yes, we will. That'll be a six to seven hour episode. Um, <laughs> it has to yeah. be recorded on Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just, we'll, have to, we'll have to do a full moon night. You know, the real question about werewolves I've always had is, can werewolves drink Coors Light? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it would be worth worth finding out. Because they are the silver bullets. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. So, all right. So, basically, what happened with the making of this was Warner Brothers acquired the rights to Salem Lot. They were trying to turn the novel into a feature film, but they wanted to remain faithful to the source material. Now. The novel, I said my copy, the paperback was 650-some pages. So it was kind of a hard sell. Um, A lot of people wanted to jump into it. A lot of people wanted to write the screenplay, but they just, uh, King didn't like it. No one was able to do one that really did justice to his work. So eventually... It was turned over to Warner Brothers Television, and the producer, uh, Richard Kobritz, 
decided that it would make a better television miniseries. So they had uh, a really great television writer take over, do the script, and then they the um, the producer saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. Right. And he was like, that guy. I want that guy to direct it. We all understand that, yes. So they had a budget of four million mm -hmm. and photography began in July of nineteen seventy nine. They were filming in Northern California in and around Burbank. Um there's a lot of liberties taken with the source material. Of course, we're going to talk about that. Um, the names just confound me. Yeah. yeah. They change like everybody. Yeah. Um, but Stephen King really liked it. Um, it was a great great critical success. Mm -hmm. um, and as of May 2020, it holds an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. We're doggone good. That's really good. Especially when you consider not many made-for-TV movies um, hold up that well. And when you're talking... When we talk about, when people talk about Salem's Lot, they're usually comparing it to all the movies we pick in our top five vampire movies were theatrically released movies. None of them were miniseries or made for TV. They just don't have nearly as much budget, you know? Right. You right. can't show nearly as much gore, you know? No. Um, the violence, the sexual... Uh, Content has to all be cut. Mm -hmm. It was like making movies for the era with the Hays Code. Yeah. You know, everything had to be implied. And I think what a lot of people praise about this movie is how atmospheric it is. Mm -hmm. It is very atmospheric. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is. Here's the thing. Okay, when I think of atmospheric in a vampire movie, I tend to think gothic atmosphere. I think, I think Transylvania, you know, or mm -hmm. uh, or Whitby in North England in the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. This is nineteen seventy nine atmosphere. Mm -hmm. It's like, I mean, I grew up in South Pittsburgh. I watched this film in South Pittsburgh. And except for the setting, which is Maine, but looks incredibly like Southern California, <laughs> this could be my hometown, you know? So yeah. it, it's, it's very, uh, it goes back to that in your face thing. Yeah. It's very, it's very in your face. Yeah. It's dialed into your hometown. Mm -hmm. This is not some faraway place. No. You know, I've been to Transylvania. You have. I taught there for a little while. 
I didn't realize that. That's cool. Taught English in Romania for a little while. Um, yeah. You want atmosphere. <laughs> it, is, it is all, it, is, it abounds there. <laughs> so, I bet it does. yeah, I actually went to Dracula's castle. Oh, cool. Did, what did you think? Uh, they turned it into a bar, which was pretty neat. Um, <laughs> it's called the Dragon Inn. Yeah. Oh, that's that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. So you can get a you can get a pint. <laughs> Drink a pint with the blad. Yeah. You know. So. Um, but you've got Toby Hooper here, who is the director. Um, I wanted to talk about him a little bit because he is so influential. Yes. I would put, I would say Texas Chainsaw Massacre and um, Night of the Living Dead mm -hmm. changed the way horror was thought about. I would... I would add one more flick in there without which those other two don't exist. Spider Baby with Lon Chaney Jr. And mm -hmm. it's kind of the first, it is the first horror movie in that vein. And mm -hmm. compared compared to compared to those two, it's tame. You know, it's very tame. But it's really neat when you sit down and watch it that you're watching a very modern feeling horror movie that's similar to the Hills Have Eyes or Night of the Living Dead or uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it has one of the icons of 1940 horror, Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. So um, I would add that. But, yeah. but it's in that same vein of like kind of in your face rock and roll horror, you know? Yes. Yes. You know, um, this book, more than the movie, I think, uh, owes a lot to Night of the Living Dead. I think so, too. Yeah. Because I the vampires become uh, a horror. They're, they're a little bit more... There are some elements that are different. They're... they're they're, they move very fast, uh, but they're not particularly strong. And the book makes a little bit of a comment about that. When they kill uh, the little boy's mother in the morgue, it's mm -hmm. relatively easy to kill. Yeah. And when, when the victims first start to become vampires, they kind of get off into this dreamland. Yeah. Well, I, I, I dreamed last night, and that's that's how you know that they're becoming vampires. Yeah. So it, it has a lot of these these people that are becoming vampires. They're not the same type of vampires that Barlow is. No. No. There's a, there there's a there's a difference. Yeah. So, but there's yeah. Is, of course, it's omitted from the movie, but it's in the novel where uh, Barlow tells uh, oh, the, the the Ben Mears, he tells Ben Mears that Mark is going to enter his service, and he's going to enter his service, Castrati. Yikes. So 
yeah so it's a very it's very brutal but that when you hear that you understand these people are his slaves yeah and then you know castrati has the link to the uh early catholic church yes yes um so there's and then take my communion there's a lot of those overtones that I think were cut out of the movie. Absolutely. And let me ask you, do you think that was a good choice or a bad choice? I think that the not, I think that Stephen King's of all the things that get, okay. If you want to bring a 20 foot Christmas tree into the house, you're going to have to cut some, some of it off. This yeah. is a 700 page novel. You got to cut some stuff if you're going to make it into a movie, whether it's miniseries or theatrical, mm. unless you're Peter Jackson. Um, however, the one thing that, that they cut out of this movie that, to me, that upset me was the role of the priest and the position of the priest in the church. And I think the story does lose something for that. Because you have you have a struggling priest who's trying to do the right thing, but the priest is ultimately defeated by the vampire. Mm. Because he has that crisis of faith. He has that crisis of faith. Yeah. But he is the one person in the story that, that represents organized religion. Mm -hmm. And he was defeated. I think that that is, uh, I don't know whether that, you know, I tend to assume that uh, when a writer puts pen to paper, he doesn't do so, he doesn't, he doesn't do so without thinking through what he's doing. So mm -hmm. my thought is that that is a statement that Stephen King was making about the church. And that is also my thinking as to why they cut it out. I think so. I think it was definitely a slight of the idea of organized religion. Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily people of faith. No. Organized religion. Distinction made in this work. Yeah. Between the organized religion and the priest who wants to be a hero, a big time hero. And you know, Mark, who is able to drive back uh, the vampire with just a plastic cross. Exactly. And if you want to, if you want to cross novels for comparisons, you look at, uh, I can't think of her name, but the grandmother figure in the, in the stand. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, so, Mother, I don't remember, Mother Abigail. Mother Abigail. Abigail. So, this is, and she is, of course, she is not organized religion, but this guy is. And, um, you know, the 70s were, were not, you know, it's hard for people that don't remember the 70s. It's even hard for me looking back on the 70s. Organized religion was not particularly popular in 1979. And... Uh, uh, you know, it would be very difficult to make that statement today and have it have it stand. 
but back then it did. Well, you know, the, the movie. Um, you know, I think you get a bit of a revival of, um, well, you know, spoilers. We're going to be talking about Amityville horror yes. here in a few weeks. Um, but that the exorcist mm -hmm. and, uh, properties like that really boosted the popular opinion of the church. Yes. You know, because all of a sudden the devil wasn't just a concept. Right. Right. And you have, you have a priest who is, uh, and the priest becomes um, kind of a supernatural superhero. He becomes a shaman in many sense, in, in a modern sense. And ironically, that's what uh, Straker refers to the priest as. Yeah. Maybe, you know. Yeah. And I believe in the book as well. Barlow in the book. Barlow in the book, okay. But yeah. they refer to the priest as a shaman. And... Um, you kind of get this idea from the exorcist that is, that is a much more shamanic thing than the, than the real Catholic church is overtly comfortable with. Yes, exorcisms happen, but the Catholicism is not terribly comfortable with. And um, you get, you kind of get that feel. There's several horror movies where the priest comes in and saves the day. This is different. Absolutely. It's yeah, very very different. It adds to that in-your-face kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think about the character of Barlow in the film? Okay. I have mixed feelings. On the one hand, that is the scariest vampire. Not, well, uh, Max Shrek in Nosferatu was the scariest vampire ever. This vampire, Barlow, is clearly a modern take on Max Schreck's Count Orlock. Mm -hmm. And in that, in that way, he is the scariest vampire ever. But here's my problem in the movie. In the movie, he never talks. No, not one word. Stryker does all the talking. And you kind of lose something. He becomes more animistic animal well animistic but animalistic yeah it's not he he just kills and you don't you don't you're not involved in his thought process i think the vampire as it's as he's written in stephen king's novel is much scarier because he talks and um when you watch the movie striker is it almost Straker is almost the main nemesis in the movie. Mm -hmm. So it's almost most. Yeah. In the novel, it's quite the opposite because Straker disappoints Barlow and Barlow of his Yeah, quite literally. Quite literally. Yeah. So it is. Uh, and in one aspect, the vampire Barlow is very scary in the movie. In another aspect, he's underplayed. They could have done more with. It. I don't know why they did. Um. So there's a practical 
moment, right? I'm looking yeah. at that mouth uh, appliance. Yeah, I'm wondering yeah. if the actor could talk. Yeah, that's that. You may be right. Maybe absolutely um, right. But Toby Hooper's no uh, no slouch, so I'm sure he could have come back and said, "No, you make him one where he can talk." You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So. I'm wondering if the idea, because you, you got to look at Toby Hooper and think about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is one of my top five films of all time. Um, he's very much about the force of nature killer. Yeah. And in this, you have taken Barlow from, you know, like the, the, I'm trying to think of a good. He he goes from being Lex Luthor uh-huh. to being more of a the shark from Jaws. Yes, exactly, exactly. He goes from being, you know, the calculated, leaving notes, blah blah blah, to being completely animal. Yeah. My question is. Am I scared of an animal? Mm-hmm. I mean, practically, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to be in a tiger cage. Right. But I'm not scared that the tiger is plotting against me. Exactly. Exactly. However, I will say this. Barlow and Stryker in the movie become much more of a team Mm-hmm. being the brains and and the voice of evil and mm-hmm. Barlow being the actual animal. Yeah. So they're almost it's almost a tag team type thing. Or in a weird way, isn't Barlow almost like a weapon? Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Barlow is almost almost a weapon. And Straker is you know, he's running the the antique shop, the front. He's the one that's out in town. He's the one that everybody suspects of killing the children, which with good reason. Yeah. Uh, he is very much the face in front of everybody. And Strike, uh, Striker is very defined, mm-hmm. very, very refined, uh, very, uh, very proper. Very British, very quiet, but he's yeah. deadly. And the, the, that end scene, the end scene where Stry- Striker is coming down the staircase, mm-hmm. Ben Meeks unloads that pistol in him and he keeps coming. That mm-hmm. to me is a more threatening scene. It's almost anticlimactic when they stake Barlow. The only thing that makes that scene scary is that you look behind Mark and you see the other vampires coming up out of the cellar. Yeah, which was effective. Oh, my Lord. Uh, better next lax, man. Oh, mean, yeah. The time I seen that, it scared the living daylights out of me. And then I, I forgot about it because that was 1979 and I watched the movie again. And it got me all over again. And I instantly, instantly, I was 12 years old again. Yeah. 
it was really, uh, really effective. And it kind of, what it does for me, we're used to placing our emphasis when you watch Dracula. Mm -hmm. The threat is Dracula. When you watch those Carmilla movies that I was talking about earlier, the threat is Carmilla. Mm -hmm. In this movie, you kind of, you kind of put that emphasis on Barlow and maybe Stryker. I think to some degree, maybe even more Stryker than Barlow because you really don't see very much of Barlow. No. But when they have killed Stryker and they're in the process of killing Barlow and you see the horde of vampires coming out of the basement, mm -hmm. realize that it's, it's a plague. I mean, they're everywhere. Yeah. And Stryker it's one vampire has accomplished nothing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it makes me wonder what Straker's motivation is. Mm -hmm. They never say. They never say. Because in the book, it's implied that Barlow will turn him into, like, also a, 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 like a king vampire. Yeah. But... One point in the movie where David Soul is talking, the doctor and David Soul are riding in the car. They've just uh, they've just killed. Uh, they've just been to the mortuary and they've killed uh, the child's mom, mother. I can't think of their name. What was their last name? Um, that was. It wasn't Sawyer. No. No, it was. Guys first. Do what? The little boy that dies first. Oh, Glick. Glick. Okay. So they just staked his mama, or just killed his mama. They didn't stake her. And the doctor finally believes Ben. And they're driving back. And uh, one of the coolest lines ever, he says, man, I've got to, I just talked to a friend of mine in San Francisco who's really turned on to the occult. And to me, that was the, that was the last gasp of 1968. Because that's kind of a that's kind of a '60s terminology, but anyhow, yeah. And it, they're talking about the reasons what what needs to be done and the reasons this may be going on. And he said, and the doctor says, "Why did they come here?" And he said, "I don't know, man. Maybe it's the inbreeding. Maybe it's some kind of rarefied blood." <laughs> yeah, yeah. vampire so movies always have those great lines. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like they're in the movie. I think the book does a little better job of explaining it, but in the movie, it's like he's found this. It's it's like the the the, the best microbrewery in the world, and he's going yeah. there. To, you know, that's at least that's the feeling it gives you. Yeah. Well, you know, I wonder if the the building of the town, which you know, I have a friend. That I was, he's a writer friend of mine, and I was talking to him about this film, right? Uh, mm -hmm. He'd also watched it recently, and he said, you know, it's like you stitch two movies together and nothing good happened in the first one. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. because it is building the town and building that atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. And, and the town, even in the movie, and they cut out a lot. They cut out a lot of the sickness. You get, you get a feel for Crockett. Mm -hmm. 
But Crockett is almost more of a pathetic character than he is in the book. Because in the book, Crockett is is milking a lot of money out of the system. No. But you get the feel that he's a shyster, you know. And of course, uh, Boom Boom Bonnie and Crockett are having an affair, and they, they in, in the movie, and they make that central. But you don't get as much of the sin as you do in the book. But you get some feel for it, and you know that the town's kind of see in a small town way. I wonder if they could have. Uh built more on that. You know, there was a, recently a remake. Yes. Yeah, have you seen it? I have. Any good? It's not very good. No. no? Very good. I was afraid of that. I, I'll put it to you this way. Salem's Lot 1979 is one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, I watched the Salem's Lot with Rob Lowe in it. Mm. And I had a hard time following it. And keeping up with what was going on, really, it it just didn't didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Hmm. I did not think it was a very good movie. See, I haven't seen it. I I'm wary of remakes. Yeah, it, it, this is not a good one. I actually tried to find it somewhere to watch it before we did this because I thought eh, it's a remake. I know it. It sucks, I think, but it's it's worth rewatching. Maybe it caught me on a bad day or something. Yeah, and I couldn't find a copy of it to watch that was available anywhere. Really? Which, yeah, which tells you something. Yeah, I mean, if you can't even get it on Prime, it's it, it, yeah, it's bad. Yeah. So I mean, I think the vampire genre, and let's you know, open up a little bit. I think the vampire genre of film has a lot to say because the vampire is a very human monster. Yes, and this is a different take on it. You know, that idea of them as, or Barlow as this completely alien thing, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not sure what that means to me, mm-hmm. or what that means to the general cons- like culture. You know, I think it adds a lot to the discussion, though. I do, too, because here is the classic vampire story. Uh, the vampire, and I believe I believe horror, true horror, has a lot to say about society. It has more to say about society than a lot of your uh, classic novels, mm-hmm. because horror speaks to the subconscious. And... The Dracula-style vampire movie is about sexual predators. Dracula is a Carmilla is a sexual predator. Mm-hmm. What we have here, but those are always isolated sexual predators. When you look at the book, Stephen King spends a lot of the first three or four hundred pages exposing uh, the sexual picadillos, the picadillos of most of the people in the town. And most of those picadillos are sexual. Mm-hmm. So Barlow comes and turns the, the town full of sexual predators into actual sexual predators. Mm. 
That's interesting. You know, um, because I would say that, like, the two sides of the coin are the vampire and the werewolf, right? Mm -hmm. You know, sex and violence. Yes, yes. You know, because the werewolf is not a sexy monster. No. Not unless you're watching The Howling. Well, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of... A lot of weird sex in that movie. Yes, I love it. It's strange. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely its own creature. But um, so sex and violence, werewolves and vampires. But the creation of this force of nature, vampire, sort of implies a rolling together of the two. Yes. You know, uh, but we could also see it as Barlow being the ugly side of humanity and Straker being the front that we put forward. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of Freud's essay on the uncanny mm-hmm. and the idea of the doppelganger. Yes. You know, we put. Jekyll Hyde. Yeah, Jekyll Hyde. Yes. Uh, good and evil, the person we put forth. This has been a central concern of horror for a very long time. Absolutely. And I think horror, like you said, says a lot about society in general because it's speaking to the subconscious. It's speaking to the fears. You know, we split the atom and all of a sudden you've got movies like Them and Godzilla and you know, the giant bug movies. And, and and those are incredibly important statements about the state of the world in the 1950s. Just as Night of the Living Dead was one of the most important statements about life in 1968. Absolutely. And the prevalence of the shambling uh, viral zombie as opposed to the Haitian voodoo zombie. Uh, and how important it has been in our society in the past 15, 20 years says a lot about our society. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you look at the 1980s and the uh, rise of greed and Reaganism and trickle-down economics, and all of a sudden you've got a movie that takes place in a mall with the mindless undead coming back. Absolutely. Yeah, so... um, You've got horror always sort of informing us about the fears of the era. And the fears of the era are very much fundamental to the zeitgeist. The, uh, you know, so what does this tell us about the 70s, this movie, and the changes that were made even from the mid-70s to the late 70s? I think... uh I think it says, number one, uh, the movie, of course, the movie is, is, I would say, has been neutered from the book in mm-hmm. this sense. It tells us a lot about organized religion. Yeah. Uh, it also tells us a lot, and this is something in the early 60s, late 60s, early 70s, the image you get of small town America is Mayberry. Yeah. 
Stephen King has an entirely different image of small town America. A post Watergate. A post Watergate. Exactly. Exactly. Post Watergate, post J. Edgar Hoover, uh, post a lot of things. And, uh, you know, Stephen King is slapping you upside the head saying, folks, Mayberry only exists on the TV set. Yeah. Then there is the whole vampirism becomes a disease in Stephen King, very much like zombieism or in Salem's Lot, very much like zombieism becomes, it's kind of an unexplained phenomena in Night of the Living Dead, but well, they're radiation from outer space. Yeah. Right, hordes and hordes of dead. It, it, Stephen King tried to do to the to the vampire to vampires what um, Light of the Living Dead did to zombies. Ultimately, do you think it was successful? In that respect, no. There have been some movies in a similar vein, but most vampire movies tend to. Uh, I think we're a lot more comfortable with one or two vampires, mm. even though not realistic. Um, but that tends to be what you see. And even, even a little bit more disconcerting in the past 20 years, what we've seen as is vampires as lovable. So creatures. Yeah. And I'm not sure what that says about our society and uh, I'm not um, I'm not sure I like that okay? <laughs> not to be judgy or anything I just I think a vampire necessity yeah um, I think I get the allure right especially yep. to a younger audience yes. that's sort of been impacted by a youth oriented culture yeah. Because the vampire is forever young in those. You know, you don't see the Nosferatu. No. In these vampire diaries, Twilight, whatever we're talking about. Um, they are these forever young, forever attractive vampires. Mm -hmm. So, I get that. I, I think what it's saying is that we become so very youth oriented. Yeah. You know, um, I, I'll give you an example from my own life, you know, and I'm not that old, you know, but, uh, you know, I mean, full disclosure, I'm in my mid thirties, but people look at me and say, aren't you a little old to be in a band? Oh Lord. I'm like, no, I just finally figured out how to play the guitar. Well, <laughs> They need to talk with Keith Richards. <laughs> Somebody needs to. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that whole idea of aren't you a little old to be in a band? I'm like, you know, I'm in my mid-30s. I'm still hanging out. But, you know, because I I have had, um, haven't had exactly the same experience, but I've had some negative experiences that come off of Tennessee McCall and what I do. And I think that that goes back to the whole zombie thing that you see and why the zombie is 
prevalent in modern culture because by doing these things, we're not, we're not zombies. We're not, mm -hmm. you know, going to the cubicle world eight hours a day and coming home watching. Yeah. And I think, I think the reason that you have, um, movies or shows like uh the living dead is it the living dead? what's the show that's filmed in atlanta oh the walking dead walking dead yeah it's uh, huh yeah yeah great yeah. Um, but you have this zombie culture that is so popular right now because you have kind of a normative culture and we're defining normal as everything under the bell curve and if you're outside the bell curve, you're abnormal. And yeah. that creates, that creates, you know, those folks under the bell curve feel like zombies. Yeah. And uh, the zombie culture is kind of an expression of that. I think. I think you also have to sort of look at who these properties are aimed at, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, who, who's Stephen King's audience? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm asking a legitimate question. This is not a, one of my famous rhetoricals. Yeah. I'm going to say when he wrote uh, Salem's Lot, when he wrote Carrie, he was writing for uh, folks that had gone through uh, college, high school and college in the 60s, maybe late 50s. Yeah. Uh, had been through the Vietnam era, mm -hmm. maybe as soldiers, but more than likely as war protesters. Yeah. Um, so he's writing, he, he's actually writing for the hippie generation. Yeah. So he's yeah. writing for the hippies and the lost hippies and kind of the rockers and. Who had by the point that he's writing, by the point that Stephen King is writing and publishing books, most of those folks have stopped being hippies and have gone out and gotten a straight job. Yeah. They, they, yeah. So, and I think that's an important distinction. So these are old hippies that are trying to get along in life. And that's who he's writing. So, you know, if we're looking at, this as writing to them, then what scares them is the idea of assimilation. Yes. You know, and the fear that maybe they've already done it. Yep. Absolutely. So. And you throw you know. in the possibility of Stephen King is fascinated. One of the things you see that he's fascinated with is plagues. Oh, yeah. And vampirism here is a plague. It, is, mm -hmm. it's, it works more like a plague than it does vampirism in a traditional vampire movie. Yeah. And, of course, it has nothing to do with the government. But there's always, in the counterculture, there's always this idea of a plague that's started by the government. And I think that that's, that is a... That's a fear here that we see more fully expressed in the stand. Absolutely. And I mean, and not without precedent, you know? Right, right. 
You know, they tested Agent Orange in New Mexico. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, when you say, uh, you know, people, a lot of people in my generation, you know, a lot of, you know, I guess uh, squares is what I sort of think of them as. They always say, well, the government wouldn't do that. I'm like, you've never read it. <laughs> Shortest book in history, things the government would not do. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. Um, I think in the end, this is a very effective movie. Yes. I think that Toby Hooper really uh, takes a step outside his wheelhouse. Yes. Because, I mean, you look at his other movies, Eating Alive. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Toolbox, Murders, those kind of movies. This is a different animal. It is a different animal. But I think Toby Hooper makes it a different animal from any of the movies we mentioned, other movies we mentioned in our top five. Absolutely. You'll notice any other popular vampire movie. This is different. Oh, yeah. Um, it's much more in your face. Um, and it, it seems weird to say in your face, but when you see that vampire eating children, yeah, getting one over on the hero, you know, yeah. that moment that, uh, you know, a lot has been said about that scene where the little boy is floating outside of uh, Danny Glick's room, right? Right, right. I think the real chilling moment mm -hmm. is the priest facing down Straker, not Barlow, Straker. Yes. And Straker saying, throw away your cross, shaman. Yeah. That's a moment. That is That's a, a serious moment. moment. Yeah. The priest is reduced. That 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 line reduces the priest to something, uh, a level that he doesn't commonly see in our society. Mm -hmm. Also, is kind of the second in the team dealing with the priest. Yeah, and he challenges him if he has faith to throw down the cross, and in the end. Barlow lets the boy go, and the priest does not throw down the cross, and it doesn't do him a bit of good. Nope. Not one bit. So, he's not a man of his word. And, and there's that moment where he says, your faith versus his faith. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's, and, and for you got two comparisons here. One is uh, when Mark snaps the cross off the plastic model mm -hmm. and drives the flip away. But also when Ben Mears is taping together tongue depressors and blessing them himself in the morgue, and he's holding that tongue depressor cross up shaking. Excuse me. Um, that... <laughs> Excuse me, allergies. Speaking of plagues, allergies are running them up. Yeah. 
but that is a moment. Those two moments, Ben Mears and and uh, Mark, show more faith than the priest. And Ben mm-hmm. Mears is more powerful as a shaman because he actually blesses that cross himself. Yeah. And that's a role that's normally reserved for priesthood. Oh, yeah. An intermediary between man and God, right? And the writer throws that away. Absolutely. Which I think is uh, interesting. Uh-huh. It definitely comes from that post, post-Watergate, post-faith in order. Yeah. Organized institutions. Yeah. He does it himself. Yeah, absolutely. DIY. It's the only way. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way. He's the he's the minor threat of uh, the Discord records of priests. <laughs> there is a real striking scene, and I just happened to think about this, where uh, Susan and Ben are talking with priests. Mm-hmm. And the priest is talking about the church's modern view of the devil. Mm-hmm. It's just a real brief scene. But the priest basically is saying that he doesn't believe in the devil. Yeah. You know. Until he's. Until he faces it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Well, Duke, it's been about an hour, brother. It has. It has. The time yep. flies quickly, doesn't it? It does. The dead travel fast, to quote Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> we can't get away from Bram Stoker, can we? No. And it's like, you know, at this point, I'm wondering if I even want to, you know? Obviously, we don't. That yeah. is funny, that one movie that turned 90 years old on Valentine's Day. And I say the movie because that's how we could we could all say it was the novel, but ninety nine point nine percent of the public is familiar with Bella Lugosi's Dracula and has never read the novel. That one movie ninety years ago uh, changed everything. Oh yeah, and still is. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, so, what are you promoting this week? Well, of course, I'm promoting Tennessee Macabre. Uh, you can hear Tennessee Macabre on Saturday nights. You can find us at uh, 10 Central Time, 11 Eastern on ITV Chattanooga. Uh, we may be on ECN TV on the Internet this week. It's Streams TV, ECN01. Uh, the gentleman that runs that has pneumonia, and he said he wouldn't. I don't know how he's – he said something about programming – so I don't know whether it's going to run or not. So we're just going to promote uh, ITV Chattanooga and then 11 o'clock Eastern, 11 o'clock Central, midnight Eastern, will be on Otherworlds TV. Awesome. So you can find us in either place or both places. Uh, Otherworlds TV, I'm trying to remember what we're running. I don't remember what we're running right now. But it's going to be great. Just tune in and watch us. Awesome. And then... I hope to have the psychotronic frog up and running sometime in the next week. So look for that. Excellent. 
Well, you know, I'm always promoting Pulp Factory Easy. Yes, indeed. You know, um, we are starting to open up. We are, of course, always running our monthly contest. So if you go on our Facebook page, you can find the prompt art. Mm -hmm. You can respond to the prompt art. You can read Duke's uh, sprawling novella. (laughs) (laughs) Slowly expanding into a novel, I think. Yes, indeed. Um, We are always taking submissions of all kinds, anything pulp. I'm, you know, go check out Blood Oaks on Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your music. Yeah, we've got a new single we should be releasing very soon. Uh, it's all DIY. So the production is what it is. But, you know, I, you know, I love what we're doing. We finally, decided, I did we finally decided, you know what, we're just going to do it ourselves. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. So. You know, I've been looking for uh, music for this radio station. That's the kind of music I've been looking for. Of course, I'm familiar with Blood Oaks. Tennessee McCall, Blood Oaks has been letting Tennessee McCall use their music. And uh, people have started sending me music for Tennessee McCall saying, hey, you want to use this? There's some great, great independent artists out there. Oh, yeah. One, one of the things that, you know, when my daddy, my daddy died, he was a year younger than I. Mm-hmm. And most of his life, he would, he couldn't turn on the radio and listen to the music he grew up with when he was in school. And, you know, he liked 50s rock and roll. That's what he grew up with. But by the time he was in his 40s, there were, no stations that really played 50s rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm older than he ever lived to be, and I can walk out of this house, get in my car, turn on the same radio station that I listened to in 1983, and the same music's playing up. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a problem. I like, I like the independent music that I'm finding and some of the stuff that's out there. Mm-hmm. This is on most radio stations. You know, yeah. and I want to give it a home. You know, there's great music, great art happening. You're just not seeing it. Yeah, exactly. But the internet and DIY is the great democratizer. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Stuff Excellent. Well, we'll be back in two weeks. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about in two weeks, Duke? We're going to be talking about a wonderful little movie called The Haunted Hotel. Um, this was a movie that's based, and I'm trying to think of the name of the hotel. This is this is about an actual hotel in Ipswich, England. And um, the hotel is famous because Charles Dickinson mentioned it in one of his works. Mm-hmm. And what these folks did is it, film Sussex. And... They did a set of eight ghost stories based on this hotel. And the first one features Dickens. Okay. And so it goes from the 1800s all the way up to the modern era when the hotel is abandoned and it's being used by a gang of thieves. 
as headquarters. And there is a tableau. There's a story. There's a short stories there that's from the '60s. There's one from the from the war years. It's just really neat because this hotel is like a time capsule, and there's all these ghost stories that are set in it. And some one of them is very romantic. One of them is funny. Some of them are really scary. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And I think we're actually going to have some folks from Film Sussex. Uh, sit in with us in the podcast if they can get decent beer over there. <laughs> <laughs> I love Americans talking bad about anyone else's beer. Like, if you can get a Coors Light over there, you know, maybe we can talk. Maybe we can talk, baby. <laughs> Alright, this has been Reaper's Digest. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, make sure to like, share, review. And uh, check in. Amen. Also visit Pulp Fiction Pulp Factory Design on Facebook and TennesseeMacabre.com and like our social media. Absolutely. <laughs>